hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Answer Show. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Sack. Not that there's anything wrong with him. Because he has a lot of chutz <laughs> Oh, right. Hello, and welcome to episode 343 of the Stupid Cancer Show, The Voice. Of Young Adult Cancer, I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 19-year Young Adult Cancer survivor, broadcasting right now from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest support network for young adults affected by cancer, online at stupidcancer.org. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners. Never miss an episode by signing up for our newsletter and subscribing to the free podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Block Talk Radio. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world. One chemo infusion at a time. In this episode, our first of three special broadcasts focused on CancerCon, we will be talking with Dr. Brian Greffy, a pediatric oncologist at Children's Hospital of Colorado, Stephanie Phillips, a family nurse practitioner also at Children's Hospital of Colorado, and Melissa Gilstrap, who is a cancer genetic counselor and young adult program facilitator at Parker Aventist Hospital. We're going to highlight the Colorado young adult cancer community in preparation for CancerCon by focusing our survivor spotlight on steering committee member Liz Harms. And with that, I'm not feeling that good tonight. Yeah, you sound great. I'm not, yeah. What I do for you people in my illnesses. Anyway. I, you, I don't, you need like a hot toddy or something. I, I, I need something for sure. How are you, Kenny? I am well, Matthew. How are you? Hi there. Uh, Sean Mal? Hello? Hello? Those are two people, Sean and Mallory. <laughs> We we uh we we speak in tandem. Yeah, power true. couple. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> separate identities. Ah, uh, yeah. I'm I'm under the weather because of seasonal. What is it called? Affective disorder, but not whatever. It's it's that's the fact allergies. that I'm leaving tomorrow, and you're gonna miss me for three weeks. You are. I I do get separation anxiety every year when you leave my presence for three I, and a half weeks. I just weeks. put up my uh, three week out of office responder. And where are you going, Kenny? Uh, everywhere. Yes. We'll get to it a little bit later. Oh, are we going to? Uh, possibly. Are you sure about that? I'm I'm taking a 2015 Chevy Tahoe across this great country in search of young adult cancer survivors and good times. The 2015 th- fourth annual 
stupid cancer road trip. Yes. I, we always have this debate about the word annual with a number in front of it. I, well, guess, I guess it is the fourth annual. Well, because 2013 is two. 2014 is three, and 2015 is four. I guess you're right. Right. It's the fourth annual Stupid Cancer Road Trip. At what uh, point do you stop counting? Um, <laughs> Hopefully not at like, When he gets his 12. license revoked and moves to Florida? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of the running joke. It's like the how many, 94th how many? <laughs> <laughs> I remember the first uh, one. He's going to be using like a, 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 what are those scooters called? Uh, the Scat Cats that the old people are on? The the jazzies. Yeah, the jazz. Yeah. <laughs> the stupid kids are jazzy trip. They're actually called rascals. The rascal scooters, that's they're, right. The they're rascals. affectionately referred to as jazzies. Are you excited, Kenny? It's a really big I'm, deal. I'm very year. excited. Uh we without sounding like it's less work, we have a little bit less daily stops in the agenda, which is a welcome. Um because in the in the past couple of years we've been just bolting on as many things. Right. Day in and day out, which has led to uh, some pretty serious fatigue. Yeah. So I'm excited to have a moderate pace, um, but hopefully, uh, you know, still as effective. I think it speaks to how it's a real good litmus test of how much our community grows year over year in terms of the attention it gets and the hostility from cities you don't go visit. Yep. And the people that have signed up for the meetups along the trip, there's like 300 or something. Yeah, I, th- I think we've crossed 300. Um, we had, remember the first year we probably had about, I don't know, we were lucky if we had five or six. Right, uh-huh. Um, 2013, we probably had about 10 to 15 come out. Right. And uh, last year in, in a couple of cities we had, you know, between 40 and 50. You're so, going to be mobbed. Yeah, so who knows, you know, the people who haven't even signed up are just going to be a, a plus one. should be interesting to see how many... Folks, come out. Right, and if you're listening to this episode of the radio show, you can go to stupidcancerroadtrip.org and uh, learn more about which cities Kenny will be stopping in and uh, how to get involved by showing up at the meetup. Yep. Get your picture taken with the car. Yep. Which is a sick car this year. So special thanks to uh, GM, General Motors and Chevy. We have our amazing sponsors, Aflac, Genentech, Takeda Oncology, and uh, Genentech to thank for... uh, underwriting the road trip this year yep really impressive stuff good stuff good stuff um it is actually i think it's the 17th annual national young adult cancer awareness week which i am on a personal mission to make more popular in 2016 (coughs) the the fact that it has existed this long and no one really knows what it is and that it is a thing and there's no real action around it um, my goal, and I'll be announcing this at CancerCon, um, is that we can get it to be a month next year. So there'll be officially a national, uh, cancer, nationally young adult cancer awareness month, which is NIACAM and sounds like a disease you get when you're a young adult with cancer. What color are we going with? Um, I haven't transparent. How about clear? Can we do clear? <laughs> sure. How about aluminum foil? Tin. Like the tin hats. <laughs> that would that would make for we good bracelets. We should do bracelets. tin hats. T- yeah. Tin hats yeah. would be fun. Tin hat bracelets. I'm going to go with that. So anyway, speaking of CancerCon, uh, we are down to our last two and a half weeks. Wah, wah, wee, wah. The, the we still have 100 slots to fill. Yeah. <laughs> we are kidding. oversold at 600 attendees and there's, what, like 75 on a wait list? Yeah, there's about 75, maybe a little bit more on a wait list. It's unreal. We could not have predicted this. 
next year we'll be at Madison Square Garden sell out. That's not Denver though. Yeah. We're, we're contracted. Oh, Pepsi Center. Then. The Pepsi Center, much Sorry. better. Sorry, they're, Sheraton. They're they're equivalent of Madison Square Garden. Very nice. Really? Kind of. Oh. I don't know. You're just totally making this. I'm up, just aren't throwing you? just random stuff out there. So how is the VIP club doing in its final final days of awesomeness? They're kicking ass. Uh, we've raised over eighty-eight thousand dollars. We are approaching that one hundred thousand dollar mark, which I do plan on hitting. So let's make it happen. Really incredible. And one last thing before we kick off the show, um, uh, our friend H. Allen Scott, comedian, young adult survivor, on the show a few times, he put up a post called Cancer Through the Lens of Social Media or something like that. And um, it was really poignant, really funny. We posted it on our wall, and I tagged it as chemo selfies, anyone? And like 300 people just posted selfies on themselves in the cancer ward today. What a show of humanity. It was pretty awesome. And and brazen courage, I guess. Like, that that took a lot of balls. And kudos to our community for doing that. So, facebook.com slash stupidcancer. Just check out the post. Amazing. Really, really inspiring stuff. Anyway, let's kick off the show. Our Survivor Spotlight tonight is Liz Harms, wife, mother of two crazy boys, diagnosed at age 34 with stage 2 colon cancer. She underwent surgery, radiation, chemo, and she has been no evidence of the disease ever since having just celebrated her fourth cancerversary at the end of March. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show the one and only Liz Harms. Liz! Long-time listener, first-time caller. Yes, it is. Hello. Hi. We're really excited to have you on the show. You are the embodiment of of, of why we do what we do and part of why the reason we chose Denver, for that matter. Oh, well, thank you. I'm glad you guys are are coming to Denver. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be interesting, to say the least. We were just discussing before uh, the show how successful it has become without us understanding what that success could have even meant. Um, and then what we could possibly even expect for 2016, because we are, we did sign a two-year commitment. Yes, I know. I cut, we set the bar a little high, I think. We've ruined ourselves forever. But, that, but that's okay. This is beautiful. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Yes. Now, your story, you know, not unique in the sense you were young and, and you got cancer and, and all the ridiculous things that happened to us when we were well or affected you when you weren't well. Sure. But you had a Master's of Nursing you were ingrained in medicine and understanding human disease and care yeah. and yeah. seven yeah. months pregnant. You know, like, let, let's talk about life a few months before your diagnosis and you were just trying to be the best damn human being you could be. Sure. So December of, I guess, 2010, I finished my um, graduate degree in nursing. I've been nursing for seven years now. Um and so I finished my master's, and I was pregnant at the time, um, but I was feeling kind of weird, like I was tired, and, you know, the kind of the overall, you know, I was pregnant, I just finished graduate school, Christmas, it was Christmas holiday season, so that's always tiring. I had a toddler, so I was tired, and then I was just having some weird pains, and I was like, oh no, I hope it's not an appendix or something crazy, something simple like that, because it was on the right side. But, um, so, so... You know, push comes to shove. We're like, oh, it's just being pregnant. I'm just feeling tired, that kind of thing. So I had my son in February. Um, and then um, I went for my six-week checkup after I had my son. And ever since then, I really didn't feel um, 
feel good. I just was so tired. I just couldn't catch a break. So I went to my appointment, and my I was really anemic. So, of course, it was a Friday afternoon. So they sent me to the emergency room to basically get a blood transfusion because uh, they kind of thought it was just something related to the pregnancy. Well, the thankfully, the ER physician was like, okay, it's not that, so what's going on? So, of course, it's a Friday afternoon. Nothing happens in the hospital over the weekend. Right. So they did one test a day until I finally had a colonoscopy on Tuesday, and that's when they took a biopsy. Um, and then Wednesday it was determined that it was cancerous, and um, they were going to take more than they were thinking they were going to. So uh, that is my story in a nutshell. So, of course, I spent a couple more days in the hospital after surgery. Well, the kicker to this is that I'm a surgical nurse, and so the surgery I had, I knew all the complications you could get from it. So I was, thankfully I was drugged, but I was a little freaked out. So I was worried about, you know, having to get an ileus or an NG tube or even an ostomy. I'm like, any of that stuff I was not really sure. excited about. Wait, does that preclude the fact that you did not need to go to Dr. Google because you knew everything? <laughs> yes, which is, so So that's both good and bad because then I already know, like, I know too much. So, um, and I would say even today, like, I feel like I know too much in some respects. So it's, it's both good and bad. So this notion um, of being, like, asymptomatic and then all of a sudden, I mean, in the scheme of things, most young adults are misdiagnosed for months and months and then finally yeah. it's like too late yeah for what it's worth yeah. this was actually pretty quick yeah it, exactly exactly and you know i was like uh, you know i was probably one cell division away from having stage three it just wasn't in my lymph nodes so um i got really fortunate in that respect as well so let's obviously talk about the elephant in the room which doesn't happen when you're six or 60 you were pregnant when this happened yeah yeah, it's pretty crazy. I um, A couple months after all of this had happened, I went to my, I made an appointment with my GI doc because, you know, you have all these questions that you didn't think of before. One of the questions was I had was basically, you know, do I need to worry about my kids and how long has this tumor been there and, you know, all this stuff. And he said, you know, apparently can colon cancer is so slow growing that he told me that it, it would have taken 10 years to get my tumor that size, which blows my mind right that means i was doing all of this stuff and being pregnant twice during that time so i don't know it's a little weird right so what happened did you have to deliver early how do they handle putting all these medicines in you when you're you're in utero so so i had my son in february and i was diagnosed in march oh okay they didn't they didn't even know they they just thought all my symptoms were because i was pregnant it was the holidays. I just finished graduate school. Like, you know, you find all these reasons, you know, excuses that what it could be, but it just never got any better. Well, I mean, that's still just as terrible, though, yeah. because you're there with a brand new child and a two-year-old, right. and you still have right, to worry right. about what, what does mommy do? And, and your husband, Dan, right. rock right, star, right. Right, talk about how that affected your marriage. Um, you know, it was um, that year during going through treatment because for colon cancer, I went through basically six months of chemo. So I finished all my treatment like in November. So it was a long, oh, what is that, six months, nine, eight, seven, eight months, where it was kind of like survival mode for both of us because we were so busy raising children. He was working. I was just trying to get through treatment. It was kind of, I think we're still kind of adjusting and, you know, realizing what we just gone through 
So it, it's a lot. It's a lot to handle, and certainly our marriage has gone up and down, but um, who who doesn't, you know? So let's talk pragmatics then. Uh, you, you had a job. What happened there? Um, I was on extended maternity leave, as I like to call it. So I was on maternity leave when I was diagnosed, so I just didn't work during that period. And, and fortunately, we were able to financially do that, um, thankfully. And my work was so supportive, and people came from work and brought me dinners every once in a while. So my coworkers were fabulous, and uh, they let me have my job back when I was done with treatment. So that was three years ago. Your uh, your son is five now. I have. Uh, they're six and four. Okay. So, how has it been for the oldest in this transition from what's going to happen with mommy to I'm still yeah, here? Yeah. I mean, yeah. we have a lot of parents of young children on the show, but everyone kind of takes yeah. a different approach yeah. to managing, you know, parenthood through this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think, thankfully, he was um, two going on three at the time. He probably won't remember any of it. However, it's interesting because with the stupid cancer meetups that we're doing here in Denver, he they I usually bring them with me because it's at a restaurant or whatever. Right. And um, so he talks about stupid cancer, and it's interesting because I haven't quite broached the subject that, you know, mommy had cancer and this is what happened and... I don't know. I haven't gotten there yet, and he hasn't really asked, so I, I don't know if he's quite ready for that or he just thinks it's a good time, so cool. He gets to go to a restaurant and have good food. So, Well, I made the mistake in my house of labeling the word stupid as a bad word, um, uh-huh. so I can't even utter the name of what I do anywhere in my household. Otherwise, I get lemon juice in my mouth. So, <laughs> right, 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 right. So, of uh, But then I, I just spoke to, I forget who it was, has a young son. Apparently... The word stupid in his house is only good if it's followed by the word cancer, which the kid doesn't know oh. what it means. But if you say it as like a, a single phrase, it's not a bad yes. word. So Yes. That's a if, great idea. I'll have right. to use that. So if my son's like, Hannah, you're stupid. Kobe. <laughs> stupid cancer, I meant. I'm a stupid cancer. So that's <laughs> the etymologic exceptions of toddlers, exactly. Yes. So how how's your your follow up care been? I mean, I mean, how often do you scan? I mean, obviously you have medical experience; you can yeah. diagnose yourself. Are you the most yeah. hypochondriacal person? I'm sorry, say that again. Are you the most hypochondriacal person ever? Um, I I think so. <laughs> uh, I think so. I am trying. I don't. I definitely stay away from Google. I stay away from MD, uh, WebMD, but. Um, I will say my therapist is a very good bouncing board for that kind of stuff. She she talks me through stuff and makes me see it in a different way, and that's been actually fantastic. Um, but you didn't have to have any ostomy, any ili- n- n- none of that. No, knock on wood. No. Right. Very lucky. Uh, yep. Yeah. No. Oh, so scanning now. So I just saw my oncologist um, last month, um, and we are now like kind of every five to six months. I see him and do blood work and all that good stuff. Um, and he is kind of, since I had radiation and I'm having some, it seems like some symptoms, late side effects from the radiation now, he wants to sort of limit my scanning. So if I'm not having any problems, my blood work's okay, I'm not having any symptoms, we're not going to do any scanning until something comes up. So, so I kind of applaud, I applaud him for that. No, and, and I'm reading here in your bio that you, you like your doctor, and as someone who works in medicine, yes. You have you have a very different litmus test acceptability measure for tolerance of good doctors. Yes, 
for sure. I don't know how I got so lucky. He was just randomly assigned to my case um, when I had surgery, and um, he is fantastic. He has the best bedside manner. I will. He's usually late, but I will wait for him and all day if I need to. I, I just love him. So before we get into your entry point into the young adult advocacy world, uh, sure. I just wanted to touch on your thoughts of uh, the value of reducing the age of colonoscopy screenings mm-hmm. to under 30. Because mm-hmm. there's a movement now, you may or may not know about it, and they will be exhibiting actually at uh, CancerCon called yeah. the Never Too Young Foundation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm part of that with Vanessa Gigliotti and, and a bunch of other people. Um, and it, it's like young adult incidence of colon cancer is increasing disproportionately to the rate of incidence by population increase. And, you know, if it really does take 10 years to grow, by the time you're 40, you're doomed. Um, unless, and if you're asymptomatic and you want to catch it before stage two, ideally, what are your thoughts on that? Is that even a movable object? Um, God, I hope so. I know. I, I see those statistics all the time on Facebook or the Internet or whatever. It's, it's scary. It's very scary. Um, I'm, I'm hoping, I think it's going to, something's got to change, right? Because this, this, this is not what we deserve. Um, but I, I think, too, I think um, primary care physicians, sometimes they don't think about that. And I think in my case, that was the case, too. Like the days leading up to my surgery, they weren't thinking cancer. They were thinking right. An abscess, or one of the radiologists said, "Oh, it's just stool." Well, right. you know, it wasn't. So I, I, I don't just—it's just not on their brain, you know. And as a practitioner myself, I, I see that. I, I mean, right. I get that. Um, I just think it might be some re-education, and uh, and um, hopefully we'll get the legislation powers that be to get things moving and changing. Right, and, and that that is a larger narrative here. We've done shows on on what is the role of primary care to detect something mm-hmm. or be aware of something that's only six percent mm-hmm. of right, the patients right, that they exactly. see. If they're and most peds don't treat young adults, and most older doctors right. don't know about long term ped issues or ped issues. So it, yeah. it's another raging debate. I, I'm in favor of of at least giving people an option to know that yes, this is available. Sure. And uh, yes, there's absolutely. something coming out called the poop smear. Have you heard about this? Yes, I have actually at a at a conference I went to. I heard about it. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's it's like a pap smear for your poop, and it tells you and a yeah. lot of false positive. They have a lot of work to do to get it, you know, yeah. where it needs to be. Yeah. But but I I think the FDA was recently. I think they did pass something recently. It's very exciting. I I really hope it goes forward because then you don't have to go in for your colonoscopy. And you know, it, it's it's a stigma. Nobody wants to talk about poop. Right. You know, it's not it's not the fluffy peep color. It's poop. You know what I'm saying? So. And the day before isn't that fabulous either. No, but you know what? It's really not that bad. And really, when you go in, they give you dang good drugs to do it. So yeah. I can't complain. No, I just, in, in full disclosure, because I, I'm a patient advocate, I just did my five-year follow-up. I had one the year after my radiation completed, and they found all sorts of crazy stuff in there from the radiation. Oh, it, like, destroyed my, you know, I had, like, Chernobyl to my gut, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My whole body. And uh, then I've had one every five years since, and I just had my, my I guess, 15 years, eh, maybe 20, close to 20 years, like my fourth one. <laughs> They're still unpleasant, but, you know, you got to do it. But this notion of having a poop smear test, right. lowering right. the barrier to entry in, 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 in any right. way. Right. Well, yeah, right. Uh, yeah, 
Yeah, it's definitely a stigma that needs to be overcome for sure. Yeah. Even so, for the older population. I mean, the older generation aren't getting them either, so. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's, the, that's another thing. It's a totally separate conversation is how do we reach – because screenings yeah. are up, but they're not up in the disparity groups. And that's a, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's, we just announced four different radio shows to talk about these different things. Right, right. Totally. So let's talk about your, your, your entree into young adult cancer advocacy. You, like all of us, were completely alone. You didn't know there was someone like you. You had met somebody with breast cancer, which is awesome. Yeah. But it's still not you. Yeah. How did you yeah. come about meeting your first young adult colon cancer survivor buddy? Well, actually, lo and behold, it was at OMG in 2012. You started at OMG 2012? I started at OMG 2012. That was my first OMG. Um, I think I was probably the, one of the only people, maybe the only person from Denver going. Like, nobody I knew through my support group knew about it. Um, my husband and I went, and um, it was... It was amazing, um, to say the least. I came out of that conference so empowered and so like, oh, my God, I have to do something. Um, And it turned out that there was a a small group of us that sort of started the meetups here in Denver, and um, kind of each one of them kind of fell on the wayside. They just got busy doing other stuff, and so it was kind of just me. Um, So I just kept doing meetups and kept going to OMG and just kept getting more involved in stupid cancer now. Here I am on the steering committee for CancerCon in a couple of weeks. Yes. I mean, going if your entry point into stupid cancer was OMG 2012, that's like popping the yeah. clutch. Yeah. It was awesome. It's like zero to 100 in one second. <laughs> it, was, it, was really, it was really great. And every time I go, I, I get so empowered. It's like a breath of fresh air. Like, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's like energizing. And it's great because now I like see people year after year, and it's like a family reunion. It's like awesome and you know that's what we year over year we get about a two-thirds drop-off rate and a third of them come back and, and a lot of the sentiment is you know are you still a customer that needs it or are you there for someone yeah. that's coming for the first time to help them i would say both right i mean i i definitely have i every year i've had an aha moment like I, I would go into a session being like, oh, I don't really need this, but I'll go and see what they have to say. And, and I come out of it like with a totally different perspective. And it's awesome. It's really awesome. And I love hanging out with cancer people because you don't have to explain things to them. They just get it. Right. You know, you don't have to get this whole background and like all this stuff. And then you get that pity, sad face or whatever. You know, it's great. So what's it been like for you on the uh, steering committee this past year? It's been busy. It's it? been busy, but it's been fantastically busy. That's awesome. What, what would and you? I can't s- wait for everyone to come. No, it's, I, 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 I can't wait to see you. But that's just me being selfish. <laughs> well, that's okay because I get to see you on Thursday for the Stupid Cancer Kickoff. That's right. I'm going to see. You'll, you'll talk about it in just a second. Twice in April. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, again, like really, really exciting. What would you say your message would be to that isolated young adult who doesn't know anything exists, yeah. right? Yet, yeah. hopefully, yet. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I. This is why I keep doing the meetups and why I keep getting involved and trying to reach out to people. Is that when I was going through treatment, I felt so alone and isolated, like. Your peers don't get it. Your coworkers don't get it. You know, Dan, in some respects, my husband didn't really get it. You know, it's it's so isolating, and it doesn't have to be that way. 
there are people out there that want to help, that just want to, if you need an ear just to bounce ideas off of, I mean, there are people out there all over. It, you know, you're just not alone. Are you, uh, are you back to work? I am back to work. Nurse? Yes. I love my job. I love my boss. I love my hospital. All right, enough of this optimism. Come on. <laughs> We're happy uh, for you. We're very happy for you. Yes, it'll be good to see you guys. All right, well, Liz Harms, wife, mother of two crazy boys, her bio, not mine, diagnosed at age 34 with stage 2 colon cancer, just celebrated her fourth cancer anniversary, and on the CancerCon steering committee, Liz, you are a rock star. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, MC. All right, Liz Harms, everyone. All right, Kenny, and now the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events happening nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. All right, Matthew. (laughs) (laughs) Deep breath. All right, we'll be heading on the Stupid Cancer Road Trip to Boston, New York, Washington, Durham, Atlanta, Birmingham, New Orleans, Austin, Dallas, Tempe, San Diego, and the OC. If you want to host a meetup in your own community, check out stupidcancer.org forward slash meetup. Cancer is lonely, and we've got the cure for that. We're talking about Instapeer, our forthcoming free mobile app that will bring instant and anonymous one-to-one peer support for anyone affected by cancer. Visit instapeer.org to learn more. All right, we've launched a newsfeed aggregator on Pinterest for all the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have the time to post on social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org forward slash feed. Cancer is expensive, so we're proud to announce CancerMaybeBroke.com, a national partnership with Give Forward, the number one platform to start a medical fundraiser. You didn't ask to get sick, and your community wants to help. Visit CancerMaybeBroke.com to learn more and start your personal fundraiser today. It's always a good time to stock up on your stupid cancer gear. Visit stupidcancerstore.org anytime. Check out some t-shirts for uh, the nice weather that has seemingly come upon us in New York City. Springtime. And all the other awesome stuff we have in the store. That's stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud. Wear stupid cancer. And that that is is your stupid stupid cancer cancer news. In our main segment tonight, we are featuring... Dr. Brian Graffy, Pediatric Oncologist at Children's Hospital Colorado, uh, the medical director for the Pediatric Cancer Survivorship Program, which is called the HOPE Survivorship Program. He'll be presenting information about the medical aspects of pediatric cancer at this year's CancerCon uh, coming up in uh, two and a half weeks. Joining him, Melissa Gilstrap, Cancer Genetic Counselor at Parker Adventist Hospital and the co-founder and co-facilitator of the Young Survivors Support Group held at Porter Adventist Hospital. She lives in Colorado with her handsome husband, two busy kids under age two, that would be busy, and a cranky schnauzer. I love these bios. And joining her, the Trinity, Stephanie Phillips, is a nurse practitioner for the Helping Oncology Patients Excel or Hope Survivorship Clinic at Children's Hospital Colorado, who also happens to be a survivor herself. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Brian Graffy, Melissa Gilstrap, and Stephanie Phillips. Folks, thanks for joining us. Really excited to have you here. This is one of our three shows dedicated to Denver. 
in advance of celebrating the uh, kickoff of the inaugural CancerCon in your fine city. So uh, I'm really excited to get uh, get uh, a, a better understanding as to how cancer is managed, how community is built, what the Denver support community looks like, and what gets you guys really revved up about what we're doing. So let's start with Brian, who I've met, and a very awesome gentleman. Uh, you have a really keen understanding into young adult cancer because you work in pediatric oncology. Right. Can, can you talk about how you got into the field? Uh, yeah, it was it's something I, I actually wanted to do since uh, since medical school. So I uh, uh, knew that I was going to go to do a fellowship after residency in pediatric hematology oncology. And then the survivorship piece actually kind of fell into my lap um, right after I started on staff at Children's Hospital Colorado. Uh, some colleagues uh, moved on and left, and uh, I took over the survivorship program, and I've been doing it now for about 23 years. The program program has been in existence for about uh, 29 years. So we've had a robust program for, for quite a while, and uh, it's really a pleasure to, to, uh, to be part of the program here. And our facility moved to a new campus about eight years ago, and with that, uh, I collaborated with an internal medicine physician to form another clinic called Tactic, which is Thriving After Cancer Therapy is Complete, and that is for young adults or adult survivors of pediatric cancer as a transition clinic out to get uh, to transition them from Children's Hospital into adult primary care, and that's been quite successful as well. And that's really a gorilla in the room or an elephant in the room. I wrong animal. Sorry about that. That that this all these kids now largely don't die. And they have all these significant issues, whether it's mental health or physical health or economic or whatever, to get them back to the real world, correct? That is correct. That is correct. And what's what's lacking right now are providers or adult providers who are comfortable taking care of this population of patients and, and um, learning about, you know, what issues they do have as adult survivors of pediatric cancer. Uh, so I think that, that that is something that we can definitely work on in the future in terms of our uh, physician training uh, is, to, is to make sure that, that adult providers really are comfortable with some of the issues or with all of the issues that, that this population has has as adult survivors of pediatric cancer. So that's a good segue to Stephanie because you manage the survivorship clinic, a word that didn't exist 10 years ago in our lexicon of wellness. Um, and you yourself are a survivor, so you know, you're drinking your own Kool-Aid. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, it was kind of a unique opportunity for me. I had worked in pediatric hematology oncology while I was obtaining my master's degree. And then graduating from the University of Iowa, I moved to Colorado to ski and snowboard truthfully um, and not really pursue my career, but to kind of more have a year of fun. And then almost on the one-year anniversary of moving to Colorado, I was diagnosed with breast cancer myself at the age of 27. So after being faced with that diagnosis and getting through all of my therapy and coming out on the other side, I really felt like I needed to pursue my career in something that I loved. And the Hope Survivorship Clinic was a perfect fit. Um, so I was given that opportunity and now have fallen into the role as a nurse practitioner there and also helping with the tactic clinic, um, where I feel like I have a little bit of a unique perspective on the provider and the survivor side of things. And... Uh, I think that's one of the big things that the AYA in adult population is really looking for, kind of somebody who gets it, that they don't have to explain their situation to with, you know, all of those things surrounding, you know, it's hard 
to actually say, I'm still struggling after the therapy is complete and after everything's supposed to be said and done and you're better and you're well now and you're cured. There's a lot that kind of happens after the last dose of chemo. And um, I feel like I, I try to be sensitive to that and it makes it a very interesting and fulfilling line of work. Right. We're getting some uh, feedback from one of the callers. I, I don't know if it's Brian or Melissa, but uh, we're going to be asking um, you to mute your phones while we're talking to the other guests because I'm not sure if this is on our end or not. But in any case, Stephanie, to follow up on that, um, the young adult cancer movement has always included the long-term pediatric survivors. I am one, even though I was 21, diagnosed in peds. What would you say are the major commonalities and the specific differences between those two patient populations? Well, I think for the the younger kids, there's a lot of kind of community and social awareness around little kids with cancer or older adults with cancer. I think what's interesting with the AYA and the adult population is that there's so many things psychosocially going on during that developmental stage, like trying to graduate from high school, trying to navigate a, you know, getting into college, or what do I do with my insurance after my parents are, don't have me on their insurance any longer, starting a family, what if I'm not fertile, those kinds of things, right? I think that people in the AYA and the adult population group are really trying to take more ownership of their health and what their potential side effects are and really trying to understand it and be successful in life going forward after a diagnosis early on. So what I see in our Hope Survivorship Clinic, the little, little kids, mom and dad, are really kind of taking the wheel and kind of driving them around their path. And a lot of kids, when they're younger, you know, three, four years old with a leukemia diagnosis, something like that, Luckily, they don't recall a lot of their therapy, and a lot of times some of the side effects can be relatively minimal when it's something like a leukemia diagnosis where we can help them with what their uh, routine follow-up should be and help them lead a happy, successful life. Where they get to be a little bit older and you, you know, they very much recall being isolated from their friends, being held back from high school, not graduating with the class of kids that they had been with for their entire lives. A lot of psychosocial things come up, and I think that in healthcare we can do a better job of addressing those issues, and um, there's a lot of work to be done. Well said. Now, Melissa, you uh, kind of work in the hot topic, you know, uh, jargon-buttoning world of the hot thing now, which is genetics. If anyone saw improvomalities on PBS your genes it's in your genes and and, uh, the field of genetics and health especially cancer i'm fascinated by it and i'm sure you are too because you get paid to do it but uh, why don't you talk about your origin story what drove you to get to this i see you uh, you went to university of colorado boulder are you a native of, of the area no, you know, I'm originally from Kansas City, but I, I came out here, looked at CU Boulder and fell in love with it. And I'm so glad I did because that's where I learned that genetic counseling was an option as a as a career choice for me. And it's worked out great. I get to combine that nerdy piece of me with also <laughs> meeting with people. So it's, it's a good combo. So in terms of genetic counseling, do you find, I mean, the technology is moving so fast these days. I, I'm under the impression that you could, like, sequence people now in their sleep. 
<laughs> practically almost there, yes. Yeah. And that's what I'm so excited about CancerCon, so we can make sure people know there has been so much updated in the last few years. So even if people had genetic testing one or two years ago, they need to check back in and see if they could have some additional testing. Right. So that opens up really like a, a really good Pandora's box of sorts to the children who survive cancer, if they are at risk for something else, did they have an epigenetic mutation from their treatments? Can they see if they're predisposed to this? Or even the young adults who have parents that have had cancer, are they entitled to know if they have, you know, BRCA or, or some other crazy thing in their body that predisposes them something? Where is the science and the access these days for that? Well, the science and access is expanding exponentially. People, if they're at all interested in talking through those issues, I recommend that they speak with someone like myself, a genetic counselor. Just because you walk into a genetic counselor's office doesn't mean you have to have testing. It just means you can learn about what options you would have available because it is very specific to the family history or to the exact cancer that an individual had. So what are you finding these days? Are people uh, trepidatious? Are they amenable? I would imagine part of me wants to think that I'd rather not know because ignorance is bliss. You know, I think more and more people are wanting to know the information, especially once they see that often we have prevention or we have increased screening so that they can do something about it. Um, There's that hope that they wouldn't have to go through it again. Uh, so for a lot of our young adult survivors, they're saying, I need to know this information so that I can make informed choices. And so I can also let my family members know if they could benefit from having some screening or prevention themselves. Right. I don't remember the exact percentage in the emperor or maladies, but only a small percentage of cancers are genetic. Is that correct? Right. It, de- it depends on the cancer, the cancer type, but overall about 10%. So if you decide to go in for screenings and you figure out that, uh uh-oh, what's next? So if you figure out that there's a genetic mutation that led you to have that type of cancer, we can often do increased screening for any other cancers that you'd be at risk for. So the big example is is BRCA or BRCA1 and 2. If someone finds out they have a mutation in either one of those genes, they're increased risk for primarily breast or ovarian cancer. And if they've had breast cancer themselves, then yes, we would also do increased screening for breast cancer, but we'd also want to take a look at their ovaries or talk about maybe having those ovaries come out at a later date. Um, We can also do increased screening for colon cancer. If someone has a hereditary type of colon cancer in their family, we do colonoscopies starting at age 25, and we do them every year, not every 10 years, so that we can find any of those little precancerous findings that pop up and prevent them from having cancer in the future. So it can be a really powerful tool. And, And that actually is a wonderful segue back to Brian, in terms of the world of uh, uh, primary care and uh, the the what we I guess we would call like the health resource literacy of having a 22 year old become your patient who had ALL when they were 12 and what does that mean and how do we does that matter and what is happening to shape that in terms of ensuring that I call myself a Gerber graduate the, the kids that don't die that grow up how do primary care physicians literacy and educational training get to where they need to be to ensure continuity of care? 
Well, I, I think it actually has to start at the medical school level, as we have so many cancer survivors now. It's estimated probably one in 500 young adults between the ages of 20 and 39 are pediatric cancer survivors. So it's, it's, it's a phenomenal number, and I think that we really need to broaden the education that medical students receive on cancer survivorship, because and even in the adult world, we're curing more, more adults with cancer, and, and, and they're living, you know, many, many years uh, more than they used to. So I think that there just needs to be a lot of education that starts early on in, in, in both in medical school and nursing school um, to and get and get people excited about going into the, the field of taking care of these patients. The internal internist who works with us is now becoming an expert in adult survivors of pediatric cancer, and she's actually grown her practice. With, with, we've, seen, we've seen well over 100 patients with, this, uh, with the transition clinic, and it, she's taken at least 30% of them as her own patients and now follows them long term. And she's an expert. So I, I think it's, it's coming. It's a little it's slow, but I think it, you know, it'll get there. Right. So if, if you can't really reach them at the medical school level, because there's already how many hundreds of thousands of primary care physicians in this country, is that kind of the model you're looking at, just tr- local training and, and building that as a, as a standard? Sure, local training, and then and also training at in residency as well. That's another that's another avenue in family practice and internal medicine. Um, there are now uh, a lot of medical. They're called MedPeds residencies where. The, it's a four-year program, and uh, the uh, the physician basically does two years of medicine and two years of, of, of pediatrics, and then can be board certified in both. That's an ideal area, uh, ideal place to start um, uh, to to look at training physicians who are MedPeds um, uh, uh, residents because they they span they span the pediatrics and internal medicine, and how ideal is that? So you know, really, you could just follow patients through their entire life uh, and be and. And, and be comfortable doing it as a MedPeds uh, physician. So before I get to Stephanie then, because this is going to tie in, how do you handle or have you been able to even discover, the, how do you mitigate the transience of, of young adults where they go off to school and they don't come back and, and how do you deal with that? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, you know, we certainly f- follow patients here o- over 21 if they want to stay, but we start to talk to them about transitioning at that point in time. And and as they're going off to college, usually, you know, we're still seeing them um, in uh, when they come home for Christmas or summer or whenever for breaks. Um, but it's after they finish college that you know that that we want them to make sure they get they get good follow up. And so we really make sure that they have somebody at least a care provider in place. One of the things we do for our for our in our hope clinic is that we provide the providers with a very detailed letter explaining exactly what the patient needs to do for long-term follow-up and sometimes it's something as little as an echocardiogram every five years but there's something in writing that the provider on the outside has so at least they can you know as a prompt say okay I've, we've got to make sure that, that that we get this person in because it's time for their for their every five-year echocardiogram it is hard one of the interesting things we found is with the tactic clinic because Denver is um, you know uh, there has a very young population a lot of transient young people come in or they they work for a year and they move on we've actually had a fair number of migratory survivors who have looked on the University of Colorado's website and found tactic and have actually made self-referrals which I think is wonderful I mean our goal with that clinic is to empower those individuals these young adults um, to 
take care of themselves and know how to take care of themselves. And uh, and and so it's really nice to see that that uh, when the migratory survivors make appointments, I mean, we know that they're interested in in getting the follow up they need. It's like National Geographic should do a special on this or something with the with the migration, right? Exactly. right? <laughs> so, Stephanie, um, Brian, this has been going on for more than two decades now. Have you seen, or has has the clinic itself and the, and the program itself seen, like the children of these survivors coming just for general care, or like I, this massive alumni network you you've created? Um, you know, we we do have some patients who bring their children in. Um, they typically, you know, are, are, are cared for elsewhere. Um, we certainly, one of the things we now offer is we have a full-time genetics counselor as well um, on staff, and she really goes through the charts, particularly the patients that come to Hope Clinic, or um, very, very carefully be, to identify those that really should, that would benefit from a genetics consult, and um, and then we move forward with that, and that has worked out really well. Um, and in that situation, actually, many times the siblings will come in of the patient and be seen and and be part of the whole genetics consult piece because they could potentially be at risk for cancer you know uh, depending on on what the mutation could be in the patient and, and Melissa I guess that's a good leap to you then because you know how is that managed in terms of at what age do children be made aware that they could be at risk if you know the parent or maybe the parent isn't aware that their child could be at risk how was that managed? So it's all very specific to that syndrome that's found in the family. So if there are any type of childhood cancers associated, we will often test those children so that they can start getting that screening. However, if there is an individual who's diagnosed with an adult onset cancer syndrome where we don't start screening until they're 20 or 25, we recommend notifying those children when they're in their later teens, 18 to 20, so that they can start thinking about if they'd like to be tested or not. Got it. So, Stephanie, in ter- if you are at the core of this, the young adult survivorship movement with who you're seeing, who you're talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it mean to you that, that CancerCon is coming to Denver and the, the universe of the young adult cancer world is descending like a spaceship on top of the Sheraton and we're going to be there for hopefully more than two years and we, we just want to make the place our home. You, you've developed an, such an existing extraordinary infrastructure for us to, to work with you on. Right. I think that Denver is just a fantastic place for CancerCon to call home for the next couple of years. One, because there is a very young, active community and a lot of people that are really proactive with their health. The people that want to know the details, they want the education, they are seeking it out. Just as Brian said, those those patients that we're seeing in the Hope Survivorship Clinic and the Tactic Clinic that are migratory, you know, coming here for college or other things, Um, it's a really great avenue for those people to say, you know what, I can be in charge of my health and I can own this and I can kind of be the director of how things go for me in the future. I think that's one of the big things that cancer takes away from you when you're diagnosed. Um, You kind of feel like despite all of your fantastic planning, you lose all control. And no matter how fantastic your plans had been up until that point in time, when somebody tells you that you were diagnosed with cancer, 
it, the wheels kind of fall off. Um, and I think that our community here, our healthcare community, and then just those people that are survivors and that know people who are survivors of cancer are very, very proactive, and the word gets spread very, very quickly. I think what's most exciting about this, and I should mention that I'm a psychology minor, so that's probably part of it as well, Right. but I really think that the psychosocial piece is huge. There are so many things outside of the tumor or the leukemia or whatever it is that was treated and was given radiation and chemotherapy. Once you get beyond that therapy, there is something to be said for how you deal with that psychologically and how you move forward. And I think that's one of the most debilitating pieces for our adolescent and young adult people because they feel damaged and they feel different. And I was right there with them, you know, um, at 27 year old, 27 years old, you're not supposed to have cancer. People your age don't get cancer. So when you do get cancer and you're not in a long-term committed relationship, you think, oh my gosh, is somebody coming in going to say, um, I don't want to be with that person. I don't think I want to marry that person or have children with that person because I'm worried that they may potentially pass that on to our children. Um, you're not sure how a, a future employer is going to view that. Um, if you want to go on to you know, school outside of that, you have to deal with medical bills and everything else and kind of regaining your footing after you get past that diagnosis and that treatment. So I think it's a really, really great opportunity, one, for people to get educated in the Denver community and also to build a really great support system because I think that that is so paramount to how people deal with their own diagnosis, internalize it, and decide how to manage it in the future. Right, and, and Brian, you, you actually, actually, all of you, you've helped us kind of script and, and, and manipulate the agenda a little bit in, in the best kind of way. We've never really technically segregated out long-term peds and young adults it's always been one bucket because some of the lifestyle issues are um are um uh, are identical you know like dating fertility insurance careers but in terms of the uniqueness of uh, is is there a value to making programs specific for the long-term peds it clearly is and brian you're going to be speaking to that what what is your session about uh, my session is about the uh the physical aspects of survivorship in terms of uh, effect on different part the therapy the effects of therapy on different parts of the body on different different systems and and a little more about that then I mean what's your what are the top questions you get then from your patients they so you know one one is certainly when they're when they're when the when they're younger and they come to the Hope Clinic, you know, it's mostly for the parents. I mean, the, the you know, they a, a five-year-old who's done with leukemia therapy is not going to know what questions to ask when they come to the Hope Clinic. But for the family, you know, we we go through all of the medications and radiation and say, okay, this is the these are the potential long-term effects related to this particular treatment. Um, and so, and that's what I'm going to be talking about at CancerCon um, uh, related to the to the different treatments and also the different body systems. Um, because uh, each system is affected differently. We know that ke some chemotherapies affect the lungs long-term with scarring. Others affect the heart with scarring. And so uh, that's something I'm going to be speaking about at CancerCon. Are you going to be addressing some of the new ALL drugs, like the PD-1s that have less toxicity and target genes? Probably not. It's going to be more the, the standard therapy, since that's very, very new therapy, right. uh, and, and it really hasn't quite made it down to pediatrics yet. Um, uh, I think that uh, that right now we have a lot of uh, protocols f f 
through the children's oncology group that um, are tried and true, and uh, I'm going to speak to the late effects associated with those therapies. Okay, uh, just a few minutes left. Melissa, I had a question for you about this this notion of risk, right? Mm-hmm. Cancer risk prevention, you know, uh, reduction, whatever you want to call it. The, the language keeps changing because can you really prevent anything? I'm on the record saying the only thing you could prevent is pet ownership. Just don't, <laughs> don't buy a dog. So what's been your sense of how that word has, has changed in an era of genomics and, and personal individual therapy and testing? Right. So I think, unfortunately, we can't prevent absolutely everything. But there are studies that have shown that we can reduce dramatically reduce the risk when someone's receiving the appropriate screening or when they receive a risk reduction surgery. They often go down far below the population risk. So uh, while I think it's, it's hard for patients to not see that number go down to zero, and that can be really frustrating, seeing that number go down from their 80% risk down to less than five, that's still significant, and there's hope in that. Are you seeing... Um sort of, I mean, the, the invincibility generation, right? That We are dealing with a generation that is, I was invincible. I was, oh, I can't play piano. I left out, oh, whatever, I'll just keep playing. And, like, there's nothing wrong with me, and then that's a barrier. In terms of self-identifying risk, even not being aware of genetics out there, is it fair to ask the 17-year-old to stop being invincible and, and consider that they may be something wrong with them? Right, right. And that's a question we hear from a lot of parents is how do I even talk about this? They can't really even get to that point that they could have something wrong with them. And and I think it's it's a process. It's not something that happens overnight, but a lot of young adults or even teens, children have seen family members go through things, have seen family members go through diagnoses when we're talking about a hereditary cancer condition, and they get it a lot more than what we give them credit for. So it's not something that can just be, you know, come overnight for them to incorporate that into who they are and and who they would be moving forward. But it's something that over time talking with them about what their options would be, what the risks would be, they can start to get there over time. All right, cool. Last question for Brian and Stephanie. In terms of the hospital itself, um, how does the Hope Survivorship Clinic uh, follow the like like i can't even put the question electronic medical records versus like Mm -hmm. social engagement sure i would say that that is something that we're trying to really manipulate to our best advantage at this point in time Um, a lot of electronic or electronic medical records now communicate with each other so there's something that we have that's called my chart so a lot of organizations that share the same kind of medical record we are on epic at the hope program if another organization has that or even kaiser hospitals as an example here in colorado if patients elect to have that chart kind of shared amongst healthcare organizations then we can really do a better job of continuing to follow them throughout the whole spectrum of their cancer treatment. Um, So social media, we're finding more and more people have a really great handle on. I know that there was something from stupidcancer.org that was in beta testing, like my peer or something to that effect. And, you know, it's any way that we can get a hold of these people who are outside of therapy and really just want to kind of get tied back into where it is that they're continuing their life, going on to college, those kinds of things. 
um, certainly we would love for them to be able to get a hold of that. If you're somebody coming from Alabama, transferring to CU Boulder or, you know, CSU, something like that, there are survivorship programs all across the country, and we should hope that, at least with social media, somehow we know that we're on Facebook um, with the Children's Hospital of Colorado. The HOPE program is tied in on um, the Internet that way. Um, if people are searching for a long-term care provider, um, certainly people are very Internet savvy, and I think that they can find us. And we can get a hold of your past medical records and uh, really continue your care in an effective way if um, people seek us out, even if they're not established within the Children's Hospital of Colorado. Brian, final word. He's speechless. I would add to that what Stephanie said. It's so valuable, all that's online. But something I'm seeing with our young survivors and our young survivors group is they're still needing that personal connection. And they're not meeting people at chemo that are un, in their same circumstances. They're not meeting people online. Um, so that's where the young survivor support group and cancer gone are going to be great for folks to just bump into each other and say, I get you. And I'm so excited for that. Well, I'm I'm excited for this show. I'm excited for this week. I hope you guys might be coming to our, our meetup um, event on Thursday. If not, I will definitely see you guys in Denver uh, in two and a half weeks. Big throat gulp for that. But uh, Stephanie Phillips, nurse practitioner for the Helping Oncology Patients uh, Survivorship Clinic at Children's Hospital Colorado. Joining her, Dr. Uh, Brian Graffy, pediatric oncologist at Children's Hospital Colorado. And Melissa Gilstrap, genetic counselor at Parker Adventist Hospital and the uh, co-founder of the Young Survivors Support Group. Thank you guys so much for making it a great show. Thank you so much. Looking forward to CancerCon. Okay, bye. I guess we should just spend the minute. Uh, what is this thing happening in Colorado this week, Sean? We are having our first ever annual CancerCon kickoff celebration. Well, we don't know if it's annual yet. Uh... It's it's successful. We have fifty people attending. All right, so man. I definitely inaugural see inaugural. Okay, fine. I learned there's no such thing as first annual, Unless Until... you have to actually have done it already. Okay, like, yeah. Semantics. So we can say it a, a year from today <laughs> will be the first second annual. I will prove you wrong. I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> saying no. Welcome to the cynical world <laughs> yeah. of Matthew Zachary. Anyways, uh, we expect at least fifty guests to come together. It is our community, so. Those fighting cancer currently, survivors, caregivers, etc. And now we are inviting our friends, family, colleagues, etc. to join us. And so it's, right. so it's if, just a celebration of the uh, conference ahead. If you're listening to this broadcast in time, it is cancerconkickoff.org. Very nice. Buy your tickets. Kenny, this is your last radio show until May. This is true. May like 12th or 14th or I something. I remember how to do all my... Job duties related to the show. I did them before I hired you. Well, they've that they've, was like nine years ago. <laughs> they, they've increased dramatically. They have increased dramatically in difficulty and level of intelligence that you yes, need to do them. Exactly, exactly. Well, on behalf of all of us, we wish you a uh, Godspeed on your road trip. Thank you. And uh, just don't get a speeding ticket. <laughs> no speeding tickets. No speeding tickets. Um, and I will try to avoid pebbles uh, that kick up and 
chip the windshield. Yeah, I suppose that's going to... Well, you're not barreling across, like, where were you, Oklahoma or something? I was actually on the road yesterday, and a, a rock hit the window. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> In Long Island, no less. Yeah. Well, was, yeah, somewhere. Okay. Anyway. All right. I well, digress. Yes. Now it is time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. The 330, sorry, 343rd episode of the Stupid Cancer Show. We hope you as much fun as we did. Poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. You drunk? Uh, no, I'm just inverting numbers. Liz Harms, Dr. Brian Greffey, Stephanie Phillips, and Melissa Gilstrap are were my guests tonight. Thank you so much for being on this episode of the Stupid Cancer Show. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity that is comprehensively addressing young adult cancer online at stupidcancer.org. If you haven't already, visit stupidcancershow.org and never miss an episode by signing up for our newsletter and subscribing to the free podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Blog Talk Radio. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Coming to you from the chemo deck, and on behalf of myself, Kenny Kane, Mallory Rivera, and Sean Shapiro, thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next broadcast of The Stupid Cancer Show. Goodbye, folks. Bye, everybody. Hey, yo, we gotta raise awareness. It's for this we strive, cause not every cancer survivor's over 65. We're all veterans of a battle, and the bulk of us more. In this world, too many soldiers are serving multiple tours, so...